Bonjour and good day to my OCD family community. Wow, what a whirlwind of a week it's been. Last week, we kicked off our dynamic OCD-related disorder series on the heels of the IOCDF virtual conference. And this week, I'm finding myself back on the central coast of California for a much-anticipated girls' weekend, celebrating a dear friend, and soaking in some vitamin D. So family, as we meet this episode, I'm so excited to introduce y'all to my southern neighbors, at least for now, here in the Golden State, Chris and Liz Tronson, as we discuss body dysmorphic disorder. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the CD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So it was an early morning, an early, early morning drive to the airport for this girl, but it's definitely been worth it. And while I was driving, I reflected on the power of our voices, of telling our stories. But you know what else is pretty sacred? Maybe even more so than the strength of our stories? It's when people listen to them. I remember talking to a group of graduate students. Oh, gosh, this was ages ago. And the anticipatory anxiety of being trainees in the therapy world was just so palpable. But what I remember more than any of my slides, which undoubtedly I spent way too much time on, <laughs> was the gift of being present and listening, really listening to someone's story. Seeing the sufferer, these warriors, the hopeless and hopeful, it's a gift. And today, for part two of our OCD-related disorder series, I'm privileged to introduce you to Chris and Liz Tronson. If you happened to join the IOCDF virtual conference last weekend, you may have seen or even heard a talk from Chris while you were there. Liz presented too, and she's been a fierce advocate not only for Chris, but other families and people with OCD and OCD-related disorders to help provide more support and more resources. So I'm just so grateful for these two courageous and amazing people who are bearing their hearts with us so others can know they're not alone. You are not alone. And that there's hope. And that you and I, we're better together. Also, I want to note a trigger warning that we will be discussing attempted suicide during this episode. I think there's a myth out there worth addressing that if we talk about suicide, the fear is it's more likely to happen. But what research actually has shown us, thank goodness for the research, is talking about it both decreases stigma and 
it can encourage people with suicidal thoughts to reconsider or to get support. But please, let this be a reminder. If you or a loved one is feeling suicidal or in crisis, call 911 or your local emergency line for folks outside of the states for immediate help. You're worth it. Also, here in the United States, there is a new suicide hotline number, and it's 988. So 911 is for emergencies, and 988 is the new three-digit dialing code that will route callers to the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you're outside the U.S., many hotlines exist across different countries too, which would be worth checking out as well. And I will be putting more links and information on this episode's podcast post at ocdfamilypodcast.com, as well as a link to a really helpful write-up that Rogers Behavioral Health did on suicide awareness, support, and resources. So with that, I want to dive in because this content is so very important. And there are so many insightful discussion points, and I can't wait for you to hear more. So if you've made it this far and maybe you're feeling anxious because of the trigger warning or worried about how you'll do with this conversation, let me encourage you to sit with that distress and try giving it a listen. Because this is a success story, family. And better yet, it's still being written. It's a raw and empowering journey, and I can't wait for you all to hear more. Today, we are talking with Chris Tronson. He is a busy, busy guy, and I am just thrilled that he is able to come in and talk with us today about body dysmorphic disorder. We also have a very special guest and his mom, Liz Tronson. And it's absolutely fantastic that you are here today, too. So welcome to you both. I'm, I'm so excited to have you. Yes, yeah, thank you. Yes, we're super excited to be part of this. Yeah, thank you. And so, Chris, I'm just going to brag on you for a moment. He is one of the lead advocates for IOCDF. I talk about the International OCD Foundation quite a bit here on the podcast because it is such a treasured resource of research education, support, resources, and he is one of the lead advocates for IOCDF, and we are very, very grateful for that. In addition to that, you are the vice president of the SoCal chapter of OCD SoCal? Yeah, so OCD Southern California, so we're a pretty active affiliate of the International OCD Foundation here in Southern California. Excellent, excellent, yes. So I want to say I saw something even in the last couple of weeks that mentioned that you're now on the board for IOCDF. Is that correct? Yes, I'm the newest board member of the International OCD Foundation as well. Congratulations. That's that's huge. I was yes. like, look at him. He is just popping up all over the place. You you run support groups. You're also a therapist in the Costa Mesa area in Southern California. So in his all his free time seeing clients specializing in anxiety disorders such as OCD and body dysmorphic disorder and other OCD-related disorders. Also, he has a media job here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because we were just talking before we started recording about how he does some red carpet events and, and some really exciting things in the industry as well. 
Yeah, no. So I always wanted to direct music videos. I went to film school after high school, but got really sick. I mean, that's when everything hit and kind of came to, you know, the worst part of it. But before that, I was working for production companies. I went to a film school that actively went out and shot concerts and shot, you know, different sporting events and things. So I was really active in that. And then when I got sick, I came back to the industry and was doing some behind the scenes stuff and just happened to meet somebody that was working for an MTV show. They asked me to come do press and it turned into an on-camera job. And then from there, it just kept growing and growing. So I, before I became a therapist and I was still active in the advocacy space, but before becoming a licensed therapist, I was doing that full time grad school on the side, helping run support groups, but becoming a therapist and having a full load, there is no way to do both. But I've been fortunate because I've been working in the industry for so long, like I still am able to work in the industry nights and weekends. And so I always say until I get married and have kids, you know, might as well be doing something on my free time that I enjoy. But no, I really like it. And it's so different from each other. So sometimes I feel like Hannah Montana, <laughs> like I have the best of both worlds like you know sometimes i'm that sometimes i'm this so it's, it's nice to have both i like i like the hannah montana analogy because you have both sides and then you have the hannah montana versus miley kind of like embracing where she is her true self <laughs> instead of the disney personification of it but yeah i mean you have very limited free time and both chris and his mom liz are so graciously carving out some of their free time for us so we thank you for that and Liz, you are a clinical nutrition manager. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do in addition to this important advocacy work? I'm a registered dietitian. I'm working in a long-term hospital doing clinical work. I was a clinical manager for many years. My mom's a workforce is where I get my work ethic from, but my mom's been full-time in a hospital. I mean, 12-hour days, it feels like with the commute and everything, but she, yeah, you're a clinical a nutrition manager, registered dietitian, but decided to semi-retire and she's been getting placed in different hospitals. Yeah. So both Chris and his wonderful mom, Liz, they lead a support group for loved ones that have body dysmorphic disorder. And we are doing this dynamic series on OCD-related disorders. And I definitely wanted to highlight BDD, otherwise known as body dysmorphic disorder, because it's more common than people realize, and I think it's really misunderstood. And so both Chris and Liz have been just dynamic. You may have caught them even if you've been going to, say, IOCDF conferences, because I believe you guys were the keynote speakers in 2011. Is that right? Yeah, yeah San Diego. Yeah. yeah, represent San Diego. Yeah, no, that was super honor. I mean, I remember that. That, yeah. was, that was magical, because that was when, I mean, I wasn't, where I am today, like with my mental health, like I was still dealing with it, but it felt very full circle because, you know, I remember going to a IOCF conference when I was really young and we couldn't even stay the whole weekend because just my OCD, my BDD, like everything was just hitting so hard. So to come back and then be the keynote and be able to really be a part of it was huge. Yeah. And, and you know, it, we've had other lead advocates on the show, and it's interesting because they've talked about a similar experience where they're sitting there feeling like an imposter, even being at the conference going, I'm the one person this is just never going to stick for. It's never going to work. And now they're like leading the charge on an international level and raising awareness. And so that gives a lot of hope to anybody listening out there going, we are in the trenches and I don't know if anything exists outside of these trenches because we've just heard story after story. So 
I would love to dive in here with you guys. What is BDD? I know we've talked about it here on the podcast a bit, but we're going to really zoom in today and explore what is body dysmorphic disorder and why is it important that we learn more about it? Yeah. So body dysmorphic disorder, the really big kind of diagnostic criteria, the way that, you know, somebody has it is typically not always, but typically it focuses on the neck up on the body but it can be any kind of body part. And it's where somebody either has a flaw, but it's very minute. It could be like a little scratch on the face. It could be a little bit of pimples. It could be like, you know, one chest, uh, you know, is bigger than the other something, but very slight or nothing at all. And so somebody is thoroughly convinced that their flawed body part or parts, because it can be multiple, sometimes it can shift or it can be multiple at one time, are thoroughly convinced that it's just unsightly hideous, distasteful, bothersome. I mean, I know for me personally, and a lot of people I talk to, I mean, when we see those videos of somebody that's been burned or somebody is acid, like that's what we feel like. We don't feel like we're like slightly unattractive. It's, it's literally like we feel flawed. So therefore, because of that, people do all kind of compulsive behaviors. So typically it can be either hyper focus on the body part or it can be avoiding it altogether. So somebody could be in the mirror constantly throughout the day, looking at the body part, different angles, taking pictures, asking for reassurance, comparing, camouflaging with certain clothing, makeup, things like that. Or it can be the complete opposite where somebody doesn't even want to look in a mirror. They don't want to take pictures. They don't want to interact and talk to people. So clearly, especially in, in society, because we do place a lot of value on image that causes people to drop out of school, to not work. That's the D in BDD, right? Disorder. So people don't want to be around others. Now, it can be part of the body. You know, somebody cannot like the way that they're, you know, for men, a lot of times it's the calves not being big enough or for women not being symmetrical, things like that. And then it's it's not what people kind of colloquially have called like body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia is more so like a term sort of individuals have made where when they just feel uncomfortable with their body, maybe they go to the beach and they're wearing a bathing suit and don't really like it, but it's not the same as BDD. BDD is where somebody literally is looking in the mirror and sees something different. And, you know, obviously we'll get into it later, but when I look back at pictures of me at my worst, I don't see today what I literally saw in the mirror. And I always describe it to people like this, like when we see somebody with anorexia, and they talk about feeling overweight. We look at them from the outside and are saying, man, they look like bones. They look mm -hmm. sickly. They look very, very thin and unhealthy. But when they look in the mirror, they see themselves as overweight. That's kind of how BDD is. Somebody can look in the mirror and think, let's say, you know, they do not like their cheekbones. They feel like they're too low. It makes their face look droopy. But everybody around them looks at their face and doesn't see that. So we always use like the funhouse, you know, mirror analogy. Like you're just going to see yourself different. The reason it's important to learn about it is just we know it affects so many people and less than OCD. There's not a lot of information or research and people with BDD are less likely to go get mental health treatment. They're more likely to go to a cosmetic surgeon, plastic surgery, dermatologist, a cosmetic dentist. There's a very high suicide rate. And the reason it's considered an OCD related disorder is because there's a lot of similar stuff around obsessions and compulsions. However, it's all, you know, image focused. I would say there's a lot of differences. I think with BDD, it impacts people much more on like a egocentric level, meaning like they really relate to the disorder. They feel like it's them. It's their personality. It's, it's them. They don't think of it as an outside disorder where people with OCDs, especially high insight do. So, but that's why it's considered together is because there's a lot of similarities. 
Yeah. So you made a couple of really great points. They are really similar in nature. And I think anytime a disorder kind of has this more compulsory or urge-based component, it kind of gets linked with OCD because OCD certainly has urge-based components and compulsory responses to help mitigate distress. In terms of BDD, you also brought up a point of, you know, similar to eating disorder. And while certainly the two can coincide, can you help explain a little bit of the difference of where, because I think you can get that fun mirror effect for, for, you know, people struggling with eating disorder, where it becomes, you know, more about BDD. Would you be more zoomed into a certain body part, a certain feature, a certain scar, a certain something versus weight being the main focus or caloric intake? It's probably not as focused with caloric intake on the BDD front. Yeah, correct. BDD is typically less around food. Um, and, and like I said, the majority is neck up, but I don't want somebody to not think they have BDD because it's more of their chin or their elbow. You know, in the DSM, we do have muscle dysmorphia. That is a clinical term that's typically men, but it can be men, women who never feel like they're muscular enough. They feel very small. So typically I see with that much more around the body because it's like my chest isn't big enough. It's not symmetrical. My calves and bottom half doesn't match my upper half. But when somebody comes in and is more focused about their caloric intake because they feel overall heavy and overweight and they're using food to shift that and consistency with exercise to try to slim down, that's going to be more in the eating disorder category. However, there are some people with BDD that use their food as a ritual. So for instance, in my own personal self, I researched a lot on what food I felt was going to cause acne because that was one of the main things that with BDD that I focused on. So I did focus a lot on food. However, the food was never about losing weight. It was food that was clean and supposed to not make my skin break out. I've worked with clients that their BDD is all around their jaw not being like sharp enough, you know, as a man and not masculine enough. So they're definitely eating certain foods that are less likely to make them bloat, salt, you know, foods without salts and things. But it's not because they want to slim down. It's not about weight or on a scale. It's really to sharpen certain parts of their face or something like that. that they would look better. So it's more so getting to the why, the core of the motive behind why someone may or may not be using food to help kind of decipher. Just like I was a skin picker, I would definitely relate more to BDD skin pickers and somebody with a, you know, a VFRB, a body focused repetitive behavior, because my skin picking was to try to get rid of acne. It wasn't in picking for other reasons. It wasn't on other parts of my body. So it's important to find out the why so you can kind of narrow in what's the best treatment for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think often we we can kind of take the the kind of more obvious evidence of this is where somebody's struggling and we go, okay, so we're going to treat that. But you're making a really important point because the why, and, and this comes up in a lot of the OCD-related disorders, the why is pretty important because you might think I'm working with contamination OCD. Actually, it's a metaphobia. You might think I'm working with an eating disorder or maybe just OCD, but it could be BDD. And the why could be because this part of me is still just it's never good enough. And the focus and the amount of effort put on to try and help rectify that in some way to alleviate the distress is is a really important thing to know because you're going to, there are some similarities in how you're going to do treatment, but there's also some differences that you want to be mindful of as well. 
So, you know, as we're talking about BDD and getting into it, Chris had shared with me that it really started coming up when he was younger. And I'm thinking around the high school age, like what kid is not going, especially for men who don't, although in LA sometimes, you know, like in Southern California, sometimes can use a little concealer or something, but what kiddo isn't going, ah, this acne, this is so hard. And so, you know, I would love to hear kind of how that emerged for you, Chris. And mom, from your side, where you started to see it kind of showing and peaking up. And I'm sure you guys have talked a lot about it over time, but in the beginning, I'm sure it was kind of subtle and hard to differentiate. So we'd love to hear from you both on that. Yeah, I'll start and then my mom can jump in. So for me, it started even younger than high school. And I think my mom more so can jump in the high school part because I don't think she knew the pre. I was, it started with my hair. I had a big fixation with getting my hair perfect. I know there was a lot of focus when I was in the mirror getting ready for school. But when I was in third grade, I went to a school and I used to bring my combs in like a lunch bag, just like a brown bag. And I would bring it to school because I hated recess. I mean, and you always think like, what kid hates recess? But I enjoyed it. But then what I would do is there's two bells. You'd have like the warning bell, which is like, okay, there's 10 minutes left. And then you had time to go to the class. And then you had the final bell where you had to be in class. But I used to bring that bag to school. And when I would go out for recess, I would bring my backpack with me. And when that first bell went off, I knew a bathroom that not a lot of kids use because there's a main one, there's a side one. So here I am in third grade. I, I'm so bad at remembering what age you are and all of those. But I, I mean, I could have been 10, maybe I think it is. Eight or well, nine, maybe. I have a third grader who's about to turn nine. But I mean, it can kind of ring. Yeah. So I was, yeah, so nine. So what I would do is I'd go to a bathroom no one would go to. I'd take my combs out. I, I would use the sunlight, would make a shadow, and I'd look at the shadow to see if my hair was sticking up at all. If it was, once again, to describe BDD, it wasn't slightly annoyed. It was panic. I can't go to class. I can't be seen like this. This is absolutely terrible. So I'd bolt to that bathroom and I would put the combs underwater, remember, in the brush, and I'd sit there and comb my hair. And sometimes, you know, I remember one time the bell didn't go off and only the second one went and the teachers had us all come in class. I remember sitting, this was when I was in fourth grade. I remember sitting in class, absolutely couldn't pay attention, freaking out. So I put the combs under my shirt and raised my hand. I was like, I really have to go to the bathroom. And we're so weird in America about not letting kids go to the bathroom when they need to go. And the teacher can't go. And I was like, but the bell didn't ring. I didn't get it go. And the, and the teacher asked, did the bell not ring? And everybody's like, yes. And he's like, okay, you can go. I remember running in and combing my hair and coming back to class, feeling calm again. That's not normal behavior. I also remember one time a kid walked in the bathroom when I was combing and I hid the combs in the, in the bag. And he's like, oh, what do you have? I was like, oh, just my lunch. I'm hungry. And he's like, let me have some. I'm like, oh, it's a sandwich you wouldn't want. You know, it's like a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on wheat bread because I grew up with a dietitian of a mom. And he was like, Ew, wheat bread. And I was so relieved. I mean, these are the kind of things I experienced at that age. It then transferred to my under eyes when I was more in, in eighth grade, sixth, seventh and eighth grade, a little bit older. And I felt my aunt had made a comment about, you know, oh, the calamiruses get bags under our eyes. And I remember just panicking at that age. So when I would get ready in our house, I would get ready in the dark. I felt like the light above would cause like, you know, my eyes to, to look worse. And I would have the hallway light on because it was softer. And so I'd get ready in that. This is once again, when I'm 11, 12, 13 years old. And then I would see the commercials with like women putting eye creams under their eyes. And so not knowing the difference, I'd go and just take some regular lotion from my mom's bathroom, put it under my eyes. But 
I remember just getting ready in the dark, pretty much. I hated getting ready in the brightness and started disliking looking in mirrors. So that was all like pre-high school age. It was high school though, when it got the worst. And you know, my mom could jump in in a second. When I was in high school, it was my skin. And the thing is like, you would go to high school and there was kids with bad skin. I mean, and I always, you know, felt horrible. But what makes BDD so weird is I felt like my skin was like theirs or, or worse. And I remember, you know, thinking that way, but I would get compliments sometimes like from my friends with bad acne. I remember I had a friend, Nick, whose skin broke out and he's like, you're so lucky, man. You don't have to deal with acne. Sure. I am thinking mine is worse and he's on Accutane and all this medicine and I'm thinking mine is worse. So that's when it really hit. I'll let my mom jump in and then I, I can come back about specifics, how it started to shift for me. But I would say probably that was when my family started being impacted because before that, it was all very just on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to go back and say that in Chris, when Chris was in high school and his mental illness was starting, I had absolutely no awareness of any of this. Mm-hmm. Mental illness was not in my family. It was not in my frame of reference. And it never occurred to me that he might have mental illness. So basically, when he went through high school, Chris was just the problem child. He was the one that was always causing problems. I was the mom that couldn't figure out how to take care of my kid and how to make him listen. He was the one getting in trouble. Nothing at any time made me think that there could be something wrong. I thought it was all behavior, everything. So Chris, during this time, he started focusing on the mirror in the hallway. We had a closet, mirror in the hallway. I didn't know at the time it was because he thought that was the best mirror that made him look the best. Mm -hmm. But it was so annoying. For one thing, when he opened the closet door, his sister couldn't get out of her room. So he basically locked her in the room and wouldn't open the door. I saw it as sibling rivalry. You know, it didn't hurt me again that this was something mental that he had to have that door open. He also used different things and I ruined some of my clothes that were in the closet and he didn't care. And so for me, I couldn't understand how this boy didn't care about either one of us Mm -hmm. and was so focused on himself. Still never occurred to me. In fact, during this time, I took a parody class because I assumed it was my fault that I just wasn't doing this right. Thank goodness I didn't listen to any of the advice because I didn't know he had mental illness. Everybody was giving me advice that would end him in police coming and picking him up, call the police on him, you know, that kind of thing, which I am too weak a mom to do that, luckily, because, you know, that would not have benefited him with mental illness. But we had lights out all the time and he convinced me that it hurt his eyes. So I'd say, well, do we need to take you to an eye doctor? Oh, no, no, I don't need to go to an eye doctor. He was very good at making up stories or coming out with, well, lies, (laughs) out and out lies um, that were very convincing. One of the things Chris was very convincing in coming up with reasons that he had to do things. He wore a lot of hoodie, sweaters, and jackets. Mm -hmm. And I forget his reasoning for that. But, you know, he always had a reason why he was dressed inappropriately for the weather. You know, why are you wearing this? It's hot out. Oh, no, I have to because I'm really cold. We had no pictures of Chris. I think his last picture was about middle school. Mm-hmm. And he just refused to take pictures. He found a way out of doing a graduation picture. He just wouldn't take any pictures at all. So, I mean, basically, we were kind of trapped in the house a little bit. 
And it really was from not understanding what was going on and not knowing what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Because Chris was so focused that there was no reasoning. There was no discussion. Mm-hmm. He was just too focused on he needed to do these things. So it was, it was not a really pleasant time, but really just lack of knowledge what to do. Maybe you can speak on, because I think I was like volatile at that time, but I mean, it really impacted you and it impacted Selena. Because I have a sister that's about two years younger than me. Right. Chris was, I flat out say, we were scared of him at times because his focus, he was so focused on what he felt he needed that he didn't care if he got violent. I don't mean violent like, like, you know, hurting us and stuff, though he could get violent, you know, punching the wall or something like that that can make you kind of worry. Mm -hmm. But he did have one time that he's talked about that he did get violent with his sister. And so that made me kind of scared. I mean, we were kind of scared, kind of worried, felt like maybe Chris shouldn't be left alone at home with his sister. But again, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's just very sad. But because of my lack of knowledge about mental illness, I really thought it was all behavior and mm-hmm. something happened to my son. And I also thought, okay, he's a teenager. You know, teenagers do this kind of stuff. He'll grow out of it. Really not the best way to handle it. I was going to say, because she's one of four women. And I think, wasn't I like the oldest and first like teenage boy in the family? Yeah, I probably that's part of it too. I had no brothers. So I had a stereotype idea of what boys at that age would be. Mm-hmm. So I knew they would be trouble. So, yeah, just a lot of reasons why we really didn't get any help. Well, and for both of you, what I'm kind of hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're both kind of echoing this great sense of responsibility over why, right? Like, so you, neither of you had the insight to know at the time. It's very easy in hindsight to go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what that was. But at the time, you didn't have a reference point for that, Liz. You didn't have a reference point you tried to do. What you could do, I'm sure you weren't like, yeah, I love having these school conferences and all these things, You were, just, but you were trying to manage it the best that you knew how, and you tried to go to a parenting class, you tried to get help, you tried to get support. And then Chris, you were trying constantly to alleviate some of that distress and feeling that probably need to hide it, the shame, the fear, like you said, that panic level fear. And so I would imagine for both of you, it felt pretty lonely in its own way and also extremely like this huge sense of responsibility on your shoulders as well. Yeah, that time was hell. I mean, I really, it's hard because I really did enjoy some aspects of high school. I was very fortunate that I played sports. I had good friends. I never did anything that caused permanent damage to anything, but That time was so difficult because I was so frustrated because one aspect I think that got me the most irritated and I, we hear this from a lot of clients with BDD is I finally went to my mom because what it was is we, we don't come from money. And so I would look up all the time of different skin products that could fix my skin and I would use it for one week and it didn't clear my skin. So I'd move on to the other. And my mom just didn't have the money to keep buying that stuff and refused. And I remember I shoplifted some stuff because I'd read on a, on a site that you have to use a clay mask. It'll get rid of your acne, right? And my mom wouldn't give me money. So I shoplifted and everything, but I was desperate. I mean, I was super desperate and in panic, but it never came to me like, hey, I have a mental health disorder. It's like, mm-hmm. have horrible skin and you need to fix it because clear skin is what would make everything fixed and happy. And that's how it is with BDD. Everything would be fine. And so I was so desperate. 
But my mom covered a lot of the stuff, but a whole nother layer was I finally went to her and said, I want to see a dermatologist. And I kept going to dermatologists to dermatologists to beg them to put me on Accutane because my skin was so terrible and they refused. I mean, not only does Accutane come with a lot of side effects, but they kept telling me, no, I mean, you don't need it. it you don't have horrible acne. I had pretty clear skin. Then I broke out a little like every teenager, but it was never to the point. It, you know, I had friends that had 20 times worse skin that were loving their life and dating and not caring. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I would almost feel like I was crazy because, you know, I would ask my mom reassurance. I remember I'd go outside and be like, mom, is my face all red? And she'd say, no, you know, your face looks fine. And I'd be like, but it's red. It's acne. It's acne. You know, so you, you feel like you're losing your, your ish. And then you have all these different doctors that are, you worship a doctor when you have BDD, a dermatologist. And so that became frustrating as well. And I remember I finally got on Accutane because I basically like bullied a older male retiring, you know, dermatologist, but then he retired and I had to get a prescription. I went to a new dermatologist and she was like, this guy should lose his license. He should have never given you Accutane. You don't need Accutane. And, you know, he retired privates to me. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> you know, that, so there was, there was such desperation and you're also trying to figure out who you are in the world as a teenager. The thing is like my mom and I were always extremely close. And in fact, looking back, I had a lot of OCD around my mom. So I used to feel like my mom knew everything and I'd have to ask her questions and get reassurance on the OCD. So I was probably more reliant on my mom than the average kid. I remember all the time thinking, okay, God asked my mom because she will know the right decision for reassurance. And, and my sister and I always kind of got along, but I totally turned on them. I was angry at the world. Obviously, you take it on those that you love the most turned to a lot of alcohol and drugs in high school to try to cope and everything. But I mean, I think the saddest thing is obviously the way that I treated my sister and my mom at that time is criminal. It's foreign. And then on top of it, I just, I always just kind of mourn for my younger self because I don't know how I made it through that time. It was just so bad, but not knowing it was mental health and not having any direction and not having any help. It just, you know, I was living in this alternate world that most people weren't going through on top of all the struggles and everything that a typical high school student. Right. Through. It's such a an awkward time of trying to figure yourself out. You're, you know, you graduate and you're legally technically an adult, but you're still like, I don't know what to do with my life. And it's an it's an awkward time as is. And then having these different struggles that have just snowballed over time. I can imagine your nervous system was pretty fatigued. And the stress alone may have given you some extra acne. But, it, you know, it didn't matter how little or how much you had because the perception when you look in the mirror is going to be, I am just ruined by this acne and feeling that fear and that panic. So you said cluing your mom in that you needed the dermatologist kind of opened the door to her understanding some of the, at least the fixation on your acne, as I'm sure asking her to buy the creams did as well and things like that. But when did you guys discover that this was BDD? Oh, it was way later on. You know, I, like I said, there was, there was a lot of, because it, it, skin was a part of it, but it was other things too. It was haircuts. I remember my mom used to have a drawer with like emergency funds and I would take the money, I think as a, as a teenager for other reasons, but I remember I needed a haircut. And like I said, with body dysmorphic disorder, it wasn't like, I just need a haircut. I'll get it when I can. It's like, once it's like, I need a haircut. This is going to fix my appearance, whatever. And that was the incident my mom was talking about. My sister, my mom gave the money to my sister to hold on to so I wouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. And she went to me. So I like threatened her with a lighter because I needed to get a haircut. I was so desperate. But no, I mean, we really didn't know about it 
There's other stuff, like she said, getting skin products to cover up the skin with makeup and things. But when I graduated high school, that's when my OCD then came in. A lot of my OCD was separate, but the one thing that it did combine with is things couldn't be contaminated if it was going to cause acne. So I, you know, it, it had to have clean water. The OCD reason I needed clean water is because I didn't want to get cancer or some kind of health condition, but I needed clean water to have clear skin because, you know, you had to have clean water when you wash your face. So I had moved out because of OCD reasons, uh, but I felt my mom's house was contaminated. So I moved out with a friend, but we had moved to an apartment where we had hard water. And so OCD wise, there was reasons I was fearful, but for BDD, I felt it was going to damage the products I'd wash my face with. So my mom had fixed a lot of the mold that I caused for my long showers because of OCD. And so my mom's house became safe again. So it was about an hour round trip to get from Fullerton to Long Beach. And so I started driving to her house every night and every morning to get ready there. And my work at the time and my school was down the street, but I was still driving all the way there. It didn't impact my mom in the morning because she wasn't home, but I was coming over to her house late at night to use the shower and get ready in her house in the middle of the night because of all the rituals and stuff. So we still didn't know it was BDD, but I think that was the way when I moved out, it was still really impacting you. Yeah, I'm just going to say real quick for people that aren't from Southern California, if you look up the mileage between Fullerton and Long Beach, you might be like, oh, I mean, it's not great, but it's not that bad. But when you add in the traffic, especially morning traffic, <laughs> ooh, and depending on if there's an event or an accident or a car chase, who doesn't love a good car chase? And so that that is some serious commitment to go through that kind of traffic because you need to get to the clean water. It's still sad that at this point, still, I just looked at it as Chris had some really peculiar kind of things. I would question him, why are you wasting this time and the gas and everything? But he just did. And part of me looked at it and said, well, he's over 18. You know, he's finding his way. He's living on his own. I mean, I'm glad he's moved out in the fact that, you know, some people have their kids still living there at 40. Mm -hmm. So the good sign. He decided to go to uh, college after high school, and we were thrilled because we weren't sure where his life was going. Mm -hmm. And so when he came and said he was going to college, we thought, oh, my goodness, our son is actually going to go to college because we thought we'd have a real battle. So in my naive little mind, my son was growing up a little odd, but growing up. So still, and, and as we've said, because he lived away, I had no idea what he was doing or what was going on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no idea. I remember this one time, you know, I wanted to help him out. So I bought him a gift card to a supermarket. Mm -hmm. I thought hundred bucks. He took it. I thought he'd be happy. I think he threw it in the back seat. And I don't think you ever used it because he thought he was contaminated. But I just, it's like his mind was so focused on that, that I didn't even realize he was going through that kind of stuff. Mm. So simple as, you know, he wouldn't take a gift card or something. So I was oblivious because he was away and he made sure that he didn't talk about it. And well, and because you were the subject of some of those obsessions of, you know, is mom going to approve of this or not? Having him move away is probably a bit of respite for you after getting through those high school years. And so not only is he not living under your roof, but there's some space for you to kind of 
think and operate in different ways because I'm sure you had I'm accustomed to you know all surviving and in, in the cycle that you guys were in throughout high school so it's also it's a little bit of a, a relief like I don't know how it's going maybe it's Maybe it's going, uh, you know, you're always going to love them. But you know what? I'm going to garden. I'm going to do my thing today. And it was great for his sister. It was great for his sister. Actually, I did try to stay. He wouldn't talk to us. You know, he wouldn't answer. He was, you know, always too busy to come over this or, you know, go out to dinner or something. So I just had to accept again. I thought, okay, he's 18. He doesn't want to talk to his mother. Yeah. And, and I was so fixated on everything I was doing. And then my roommate and I, her boss, from what I remember, her boss had to move to New York to run the, the Eastern Corporation version of their, you know, the Orange County office. So she wanted to move a friend of mine who I was living with. We were roommates, wanted to move her in because she didn't want to sell her house because she's like, I'm going to be back in like four or five years. And she didn't want to rent it out to strangers. So my roommate and I moved into that house. And so that didn't have hard water. Also, I hated the mirrors at my Fullerton place. I was fine. They were acceptable. I still liked my mom's mirrors better, but it was acceptable. And so that four months that I was doing that stopped. So that one, you know, the only interaction my mom and I would have would be her being yelling at me for waking her up. Now we didn't even have that. But the reason I never interacted with my mom was a, a multitude of reasons. And a big part of it was BDD. So Part of my BDD was the fear of running into people from high school because, you know, I felt even it's so weird because it's like, even though I hated how I looked at a certain point as time progressed, I felt like I got so, so much worse. So then at one point, even if I hated how I looked in retrospect, I would look back and be like, I wish I at least looked like that because now I'm even worse. So when I was living on my own with my roommate in Huntington Beach, I didn't want to go to my mom's house for, you know, OCD reasons. Also, so fixated on everything going on in my head. But the other reason is because if I went and saw my mom, I'd be in the area I grew up. What if I bump into somebody from high school and they're going to see me and think what happened to him? Like he was athletic and he was good looking in high school. And now he's so hideous and gross. Like he let himself go. So I just kind of cut myself off from that whole world. And the next three, three, four years was probably the worst three, four years of my life because my roommate and I stopped becoming friends because of my rituals. There are certain like rules now I was trying to place on her what she could or could not do. I was really struggling in school, couldn't get to school. A lot of BDD it would take me so long just to get ready in the morning, get ready at night. So I wasn't making it to classes. I wasn't making it to my job. And so I dropped out of school. I stopped seeing friends. And I was really just living off of savings. I know my great grandma had passed and we got a small amount of money. I had won a scholarship or something. And then I had worked since I was 15. So I was really just living off of my savings. My rent was lower. We were fortunate that the landlord gave us a really good deal on the house. And then I was splitting it with someone and she had the master bedroom bigger. So I wasn't paying too much on rent. I just wasn't spending a lot of money on, on non-essential BDD and OC items. So. Sure. That was where this was right before we got help. So the, the next three years was like a bad time. I mean, I was extremely depressed. I was isolated. I didn't want to be seen from people. I felt unattractive. I luckily kept my journal from those times because I can read them back and just be so shocked. But I had a whole list of things I needed to change with my appearance. Started with skin. It was getting your skin clear, tanning to make it look even, getting a better haircut, getting more muscular. Like it was this whole kind of like overhaul, I had to have like a glow up for myself before I could even function. But because it was BDD and not really image, I could never get there. I was desperate with skin products. 
I was using more than my dermatologist was telling me. I didn't care. I was desperate. And so three years, I stopped going to family events. I think my mom came over once. My aunt or someone, we went, there was a Greek restaurant. We're half Greek. My mom's full, but we went to a Greek restaurant by and my aunt, I remember Maggie was so pushy to see my place. So I showed them my place. That was probably the first time they saw my place in three or four years. But I just pulled back from family. I mean, I still even had judgment with them. I didn't want them to see how I looked. And I was just in this mindset, if I could just fix my appearance and look good again, I can go out in the world and everybody would be like, wow, Crystal looks attractive, but it just never happened. So it was like October. I just remember it, it, it had just boiled over. There was just too much. There was depression now going on, the OCD, the body dysmorphic disorder. But I was very depressed, isolated. My money was running out. So I was like, how am I going to afford my skin products? How am I going to afford all this stuff for my parents, my dermatologist bills? And so the the lowest point in my life was finally attempting suicide. I'd gotten to a point that I was just over it. I'd seen the movie a week before the client with, it's a John Grisham book, but in the very beginning of the scene, they plug his uh, exhaust pipe and ends up running the car and then dying. And so we didn't use our garage. We used it for storage and our washroom and dryer was there. We had like a lot of street parking, this huge uh, driveway. And so I remember also they were going to tent the house, which that was OCD. They needed to tent our house for termites. And that was my OC. I was going to get cancer and all that. And the BDD always kind of had a play in the OCD as well. Because, oh, if I get cancer, then I'm going to lose my hair and look sickly. So it was, it yeah. was all hodgepodge. And I remember just being at my lowest moment and pulling the car in the garage and, you know, plugging up my exhaust pipe and running the car. And there was like a moment that I remember stopping the car, going out and going in the mirror. I will always remember this moment to look at myself and be like, is this something I'm really willing to do? And I just remember looking in the mirror, hating what I saw back, feeling very unattractive. And, and it's more than unattractive, just feeling put together incorrectly. So I went back and ran the car and was just done. My roommate, who we had not been talking at that point, it was very uncomfortable never came home from work. I did it when I knew she was at work. She was working. She worked for like a printing company, but she also was working at the Queen Mary as a bartender. She was doing bartending on the weekend. So I went when I knew she was working and did this, but she came home and she was the type that would never come home sick and probably heard the the car because we never used the garage and came. And I remember her opening the door and kind of like banging on that. And I remember kind of kind of being like hazy or like kind of coming out talking to her and she was asking what was going on it was like a very panicked moment and us getting like she was worried and i just remember being like oh i fell asleep and everything like that it was like a very awkward moment mm -hmm. i don't remember if she called the ambulance if i called it or if i drove myself to the hospital i just remember going there because i was super panicked i was really really sick i was like fog and, and just feeling really, really low. Mm -hmm. And I remember just getting medical help and then them asking me what was going on, like what happened. And my roommate wasn't there when I came to, but asking me like what was going on and just remember saying, you know, I fell asleep in my car. I fell asleep in my car. So I remember them talking to me and the doctor like didn't want to push it, but he said, you really need to be around family right now. You need to be around family. And so my mom and I were not close, but we were closer than my dad. My dad and I didn't have a relationship. And I remember thinking, okay, well, my mom lives alone. I was, I was scared. I, I, re I remember thinking at that point, because then, you know, you, you don't die and you're kind of like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do? I don't know. It just, it was such a bad time mentally. Yeah. But I decided to move in with my dad, partly because of the OCD. My mom's house was tented, partly BDD. I might see people, but it was also like, there was a part of the human me that was just really panicked. And I wanted 
you know, the doctor was like, you need to be around people. So I moved in with my dad, but I remember my mom and I being in the living room and finally opening up to her about the suicide attempt. And that was really when she got involved again. And we kind of got on our journey to finally get a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, and that had to be such a powerful moment, scary, but also empowering to be able to have you guys come back together and say, we're going to fight this, whatever this is. Yeah, it's um, it was a horrifying moment. I've always thought if he had succeeded, I I would have had no idea why. I, I would never have known why because I was so unaware of what was going on in his life. And absolutely, it was. You know, it's funny I, when she not funny when you bring up. We've never had a full discussion about that day. I I still to this day haven't had a full discussion about that day. Um. And, um, and that's on purpose, <laughs> you know, just kind of painful. Yeah. So yeah, it was like, absolutely. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix it. Period. Yeah. You know, and, and something I'm hearing a lot in your perspective on this mom is, is kind of reiterating that I didn't know. I didn't know. Looking back, I didn't know, but it's how could have you known? Like, we can only know what we know when we know it. And there's no shame in suffering from mental health. And there's no shame in somehow not mind reading through something that was very well masked and saying, yeah, but there there was all that pain. We can't know. We, we can only know what we can know. And I know as a mom, I have three kiddos, you know, I would do anything to support my kid, I would, and it would feel like my heart was ripped out if I knew what any of my kids were suffering to even a partial amount of that degree. But at the same time, it wasn't your fault. And it's not Chris's fault that he has mental health. We all have mental health. <laughs> we all have brains and we all have mental health. And I, I think it's very important to be open to learning and gaining this awareness, which it certainly sounds like you have. But at the same time, just remembering, like, you're not a mind reader and you didn't know. It's okay that you didn't know. It's okay that Chris didn't know. It, it's really painful that you didn't know, but you, neither of you knew. And once, once it hit this really scary low, which fortunately he survived, then you were able to go, well, we're going to figure out what this is. So, you know, I I just want to throw that out there because I mean, I just kind of feel the weight of that guilt that I think is so easy for us to take on. And, and probably for both of you, oh my gosh, that she went through that. It, it pains me that I went through that, that she went through that, that my sister or dad. And it's like, you know what? You guys were suffering and you survived, but this is this is a story that a lot of people can relate to. We don't know until we know. And even then, sometimes it's hard to figure and process all these pieces out. So it sounds like not only did he survive, but you, in joining him, still not knowing what it was, was able to help save him from getting to that low again. So... How did you discover that this was, and and like you've said, a combination of different really tricky things that, you know, in Southern California, at least we have more professionals and more specialists, but some of these tricky things that are hard to kind of piece out and say, oh, this is OCD, this is BDD, this is depression, which we can have intrusive thoughts in all of them. So 
you know, what, what did that journey look like to getting diagnosis? Yeah, we, so, you know, after I opened up to my mom, so I was living with my dad at that time. So I moved out for a myriad reasons. It was, you know, the house is going to be tented. So that was the OCD component of it. The human part, like I said, scared to be alone. I'd reached out to my dad and asked if I could move in with him and my grandma, my sister. It was going to be temporary just so I could get back on my feet. It ended up not being temporary, but I moved in with them. Uh, I remember opening up to my mom and that was the first time I went in her house because I hadn't been in her house because of the OCD. And then when we talked about it, I had found an article because we, we, I think we probably thought it was depression, but I'd found an article that had a very small article about OCD. And I went to my mom, I think I have this OCD thing, right? And so we kind of dismissed it. But then after the suicide attempt, I was like, I really, you know, I was pretty adamant. So we went to our insurance. Do you want to talk about that part? Because you know that, that part better than I do. I yeah, we went through our insurance, of course, and so many phone calls. I mean, so many phone calls. And as you know, calling doctors, you don't always reach them. So you're waiting for return calls. We did find one doctor said he'd been treating OCD for over 20 years, et cetera. So we thought, great, this is wonderful. So took Chris to that doctor. Needless to say, he was not being accurate. <laughs> he did not know how to treat OCD. But what happened is immediately I got online, which is difficult for me, <laughs> got on and started researching. And it took about Four months. Again, remember, this is a long time ago. And, and now it's, it's hard to think that it would take four months to find anything. But to really go around and look and to realize that there was some kind of treatment for his OCD. So I remember asking Chris one day, I said, okay, go talk to that doctor. Because this doctor had basically said Chris was horrible. He's never going to get better. I just remember coming home. I, I had a picture of Chris, an old picture of Chris, because we didn't have any new ones. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting on my bed, and all I did was cry. My son was gone, and the doctor told us he's never going to get better, never. And I, I just, I know part of me was just like, uh, I, no, this isn't, no, this is my son. That's not going to happen. So I was researching, and then I went and I said, Chris. I've heard about this thing called ERP. Just go to this doctor and say, does he do ERP? And I remember the doctor said he didn't know it or he didn't believe in it or something. And right away, I said, you're not seeing him anymore. This doctor's the wrong doctor. He doesn't know what he's doing. By that time, I had found a couple of places. And, you know, the IOCDF definitely helped me find a place in Westwood. Mm -hmm. And don't look at a map. It took sometimes two hours to get there. But we were so lucky because I know at that time when I went to my first conference, IOCDF conference, mm -hmm. I talked to people that had to fly to get treatment. They had to get a plane to get treatment. And we had a place in L.A. So at that time, I think there were only two places. And basically, we called them both up. And the one that answered first, we ended up going there. Mm -hmm. Doctor said he had to talk to Chris. He wanted to make sure that Chris was wanted to do this. So I remember sitting there saying, Chris, dial the number. We're dialing the number. You're going to call him. And he said, yes, he did want to do treatment. And I was so happy because this therapist said, I think I can help your son. I don't think he's the worst case I've ever heard of. I think that we could definitely do this. And that was so wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to go to that therapy. 
it was, like I said, Chris came from Laguna. So sometimes it was four hours for him, two hours for us. Mm-hmm. We'd feed in the middle and drive up there. And then he would have his therapy. And I just continued to learn everything I could. Reading books, reading online, whatever I could to learn more and more about it. But very, very lucky that we lived in a place at that time that had. Now there's a lot more therapy out here. Right. And when would have that been? Like, would that been? About 2000. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, what I remember is, you know, we went through my insurance. Even before this guy, though, I had gone to multiple therapists that we found. And finally, with one of them, I don't know why I felt comfortable enough, but I opened up that a lot of my thoughts were on my image. The rest of them, I was talking about the OCD and I was talking about depression. And before the doctor she's talking about, I probably, I think I went to like five or six first sessions and it wasn't where it was like on a Monday through a Friday and it got him out in a week. I mean, you go, you have to call another person, make appointments. This was like a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. I was also like losing steam. I mean, I I was still in a mental place. I I mean, I moved back in with my dad who he and I hadn't talked for like 10 years. We didn't get along and things. And so I was just around like bad area, but I would say more so for me, I was losing hope because I was going to these bad therapists. We went to a psychiatrist who spent 10 minutes with me and it just, all of it was bad. And, you know, now being a therapist, I remember the, well, well, two incidences that stick out. So one of the therapists, I finally went to her and I opened up to her about my image stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll focus on appearance and I'll never forget. She said, I think you look very attractive. You're very handsome. And if you weren't my client, I would love to go on a date with you. No, she did not, Chris. She absolutely did. Which now, therapist I know is extremely unethical. And so I felt extremely dismissed. I mean, that's the feeling that I remember feeling because once again, I had already felt so dismissed by the dermatologist and I felt dismissed from her. And then the therapist that she's talking about, the one that I said was like the worst case ever, never going to get better, going to live at home. I'll never forget. We're in the middle of our session and he steps out and I just see him come back with these two twin girls. I will never forget. And he goes to me and he's like, these are my next clients and they're really, really suffering and they're worse than you. So I'm going to need to end our session early because I need to step in with them. And this was halfway through the session. And I just remember like getting up and walking out in the middle of a session, which now as a therapist was is absolutely horrendous to think. I mean, my jaw dropped and I have a good therapist poker face, but I was like straight to like, I can't believe that. It was horrendous. And, and what was hard is I downplayed what was going on. I was really scarred from that first therapist about talking about my appearance. So I remember when I went to my therapist at OC Center of LA. I know that she and I had talked about needing an intensive and I remember us reaching out to the only intensive at the time was UCLA and they had something like a year wait list. I just, I was still contemplating suicide. The only reason I didn't is I remember thinking I was so disconnected with my family. So thinking that my, my death would be a minor inconvenience, right? Like my funeral would be a minor inconvenience. Now being an adult and being clear headed, I mean, I know that you know, somebody killing themselves impacts the family for the entire lifetime. I just didn't, I was so gone. Mm -hmm. When my mom really reacted emotionally about me telling her I was going to kill myself, I felt like I was hanging on for her. But by the time we got to this therapist, I'm still surprised that my younger self agreed because I had had such bad therapy and was so checked out. And so when this therapist, I remember meeting with her and her saying to me, like, you do need an intensive, you're a very severe case. I remember doing the Y box and my Y box score was probably 36 out of 40 at the time, really high. 
But what she said to me and what I always remember, my mom always completes this. She always says that you weren't the worst case. No, what my therapist said to me is, you know, she asked me, are you good at doing things in between sessions? We'll do once a week. It's it's definitely not the level of care you need. It's all that we can provide at this time because of her schedule. Do you think you'll be able to do work in between? And I remember talking about, you know, being an athlete, I used to train on my own between games and practice. And so because of that mindset, she felt like I could make it work. And that is what got me better because I, I would have now running intensive programs and knowing about residentials, I would have done so much better if I was in an intensive or a residential. But the one thing I'm proud of my younger self is every single week in between sessions, I was kicking butt. I was doing the work. The way that BDD came about is I finally got comfortable enough again to open up to her about all the image stuff. And I think that's also why people... I downplayed what I was going through because I was only telling people 50% of the, the story. The BDD was this big monster. But once again, I didn't know if it was an appearance-based issue. So I started opening up to her. And luckily, my therapist knew enough about BDD. And she said, hey, look, there is a treatment center that focuses exclusively on BDD, you know, in this area. The therapist named Ari Winograd. And she said, he's running a BDD support group. Why don't you go and do an assessment to see if you have BDD? So he was the first person I really just dropped everything and opened up to. And I remember going through the assessment and he was asking me questions that only somebody who was in my mind could ask. Mm -hmm. And I remember breaking down in that assessment because I finally felt seen. I was right. like, so he was starting a support group. So he approved me. I was one of the first people in a support group. And so I started going to OCD therapy. I had finally got it, was willing to go on some medication. I did six months of treatment without medication, but finally hit a wall. I, you know, met a psychiatrist, Dr. Jamie Fusner, who was amazing and really helped me get medication. And so Karen Pickett was my OCD therapist. I was doing like OCD therapy, psychiatrist, BDD group. But the BDD group being with other people, I remember going into that room thinking I was going to see other disfigured people. And I remember walking in, all of them were normal looking, some attractive and thinking, did my mom pay people to like make me feel better? But it's my mom. She doesn't ever pay for anything. <laughs> <laughs> mom, my treatment. So my mom wasn't the kind of mom before treatment to be like, let's go splurge. But she definitely wasn't because we were so poor from treatment. But I just was like, there's something wrong. There's something going on here. I'm being bamboozled. Being in that group, I finally started to understand BDD. I was surrounded by people where when they would talk about their appearance-based fear, I didn't see it. It wasn't bad. It was either non-existent or so slight that I'd have to get a magnifying glass to even see what they're talking about. And that was the first time I was finally able to sit there and think like, maybe this is in my head and is how I really look. And so we went through the BDD support group, but what also really helped me is my mom did a lot of reading and research. And so we'd get food because we had this big gap. And so you would be reading me stuff all the time. Yeah. And, and again, there was not as much information. Catherine Phillips, as you know, wrote the number one book on BDD and actually, very, fear, yeah. Yeah, actually very readable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'd be reading that and I would come and I'd come, okay, Chris, it says this, do you do that? And he say, yes, or do you think this? And really helped me to understand him so much better. Yeah. And then, you know, it just, it was also just helpful, I think, to bring stuff and we educated ourselves together. The more that we learned, the more that we understood it. But I think the other thing that I loved about the BDD support group, I remember coming to pick him up one day afterwards and he comes out and he's talking to these people 
And I hadn't seen him talking to people his age in years. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's making friends. You know, so he'd say, Mom, it's okay if we do this. And it was like, I don't care how long it takes. You know, I can sit in my car and read. But I thought, he's making friends. He's talking to people. And it was so beautiful to see. I had not seen him animated or talking. I hadn't seen him social or anything in years. So this really opened him up. And I know he runs some support group. And that's one of the things that we tell people is like, there's something about being in those groups with people that understand you mm-hmm. that changes everything. Maybe you can't hear it from your mom or your therapist, but you hear it from somebody your age because that's what I saw in him. Absolutely. Because I was I, I was always social. It wasn't yeah. like the, you know, I, I mean, in high school, I was on pump court. I played sports. I always had friends. I would have things to do. And I think that was also part of what was really difficult for me. I wasn't somebody who was used to not going out and having friends. I was constantly around people. So the BDD support group was the first group of people at that point, it could have been five or six years where I really was engaging with people around my age. And so that went really well. I remember finally I was starting to go and I I had gotten really better from that BDD group. And I remember Ari Winograd saying, every week you're just kind of coming and giving other people advice and not really taking time for yourself. It's okay if you don't want to come anymore. I'd finished OCD treatment. The medication was stable. So I was really just coming up for the group. And so we made the decision after two years for me to stop the BDD crew. And then, you know, I kind of dealt with a whole new experience as I started dating. And that was really hard with BDD. And I went back to the, the industry because I had been working in production and then got a job doing stuff on camera. So we ended up, I ended up going back to working with Ari because I'd never worked individual with somebody for body dysmorphic disorder, just the group. But I ended up going back to work with Ari maybe like a year year or so because both dating now because i wasn't dating so date like a whole new kind of curveball with bdd and when i would do these interviews on camera you know i'm interviewing people in hollywood celebrities you know angelina jolie brad pitt like these very good looking people so there's a lot of comparison but i think what was more so is i'd have to do voiceovers and we'd send clips off to people and i'd have to watch myself back so I think the combination of those two things kind of set me back a little bit, but going to Ari individually was very helpful because I finally dig deep into my stuff. I remember, you know, us going around Westwood and really doing exposures around certain things that I like about my body, kind of drive, most of it was dropping the camouflaging I was doing and going around Westwood and interacting with people and also kind of getting to some of the deeper stuff that was causing the BDD. But after about a year, year and a half, same thing, it was like, I'd come and we we're kind of just chatting and he's like, I think it's time. I got a much healthier understanding of myself on camera. I started getting much healthier with dating. And I think the biggest thing that came over me was this level of acceptance. I made a kind of a commit myself and said, I am never going to go get some horrendous plastic surgery. I know it's not helpful for people with BDD. It makes us worse. This is what God gave me. I'm going to do the best I can with it. I can still sleep and shower and take care of myself and you know use products and stuff, but nothing crossing a boundary of, of BDD and no kind of surgeries and just was like content with that. Also focusing on other aspects of myself that I cared about. Additionally, doing a lot of advocacy and then being a therapist also helped because working with other people and being able to have a non-emotional connection to what they're going through, I would look at these people and say, you're fine, go live your life. So I'd have to use the same advice for myself. So that was sort of like the second half of my BDD treatment. But yeah, there's new challenges. I mean, things I'd put off for years were new challenges for myself. And I had to use those tools in those areas 
regardless of what came at me. It's an interesting and and really kind of good point to note. There's certain things that are going to trigger, but that doesn't mean those things are bad. And avoiding it would have resulted in you not having relationships and you not having the career that you have now, you know, in part at least with what you do in the industry as well as your therapy. And I think this is a really good note for families because sometimes there is a desire to avoid some of these kind of areas, these arenas where it's like, oh, but this is just going to trigger, trigger, trigger. Already SoCal is a huge trigger for looking perfect. And there are so many plastic surgeons. There are so many dermatologists. There are, I, I remember once I had run a marathon or something, you know, maybe a week or two before I was meeting up with some friends at a bookstore, somebody came out and they were like, are you, are you the four o'clock appointment? And I looked at her and I'm like, uh, no, I don't have a four o'clock appointment. I don't even know what appointment you're talking about. And she was like, at this weight loss clinic. And I was like, you know, and part of me was like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't like, I, I wasn't a negative zero, but I wasn't big. And I just remember thinking, man, that could really screw somebody's mind. And as much as I'd like to say it didn't screw with mine, it, it, it did a little bit of going like, I think I've got, you know, and, and but in LA fat, you can be rail thin and you can be fat. You can have some kind of imperfection. And with Photoshopping, you know, you have someone who already looks amazing in person and now they're Photoshopped to be subhuman. And that's what people are comparing themselves to. They say, you know, but look at their jawline and look at their thigh gap or non-thigh gap or whatever. And it's not even real. It's, it's not even them. And already they're holding themselves to these unbelievable standards. And then it's Photoshopped on top of that. And so it, it's a hard place as is, but I love that you got to still lean into what do I want to do with my life? I can be an advocate and I can do, and it might mean I need to do some more work, even though I was in a good place. That's not a bad thing. That means you're getting to live your life and it's okay to go back for more help if you need it. Yeah. I remember one kind of game changer too, to, to agreeing, not agreeing because I, I didn't need to be convinced, but deciding to go back to see Ari individually is my mom and I got asked to be on a talk show, the Montel Williams show for BDD and, you know, being on camera and they had me like do an exposure on camera with Hugan Nizaraglu, who's been, you know, obviously a leader in the BDD field, but she had me do kind of like a mirror restructuring training. And I'm like looking at my appearance on national television. And I just remember thinking, I need some individual help. But yeah, it's difficult because with BDD, the OCD for me, I mean, you know, there is some perfectionistic qualities that I have and wanting things to be perfect and stuff like that. But, you know, the intrusive thoughts and the being stuck in the house and the worried about my health all the time, like that's all gone. The BDD is never going to go away because your appearance changes, right? So there is such a focus on appearance. So obviously I don't think about my appearance and deal with it in the same BDD manner as I once did. But it's finding a healthy balance because asking a client with BDD to just stop caring about the appearance altogether is just not going to happen. And being in Southern California and people are working out and eating healthy and tanning and all that stuff, there is a pressure to do that. And I felt that because there was a whole new level of pressure going out and dating. It's like, you know, part of it was hard just on myself caring how I looked. But now I'm like going out and trying to win someone over partially on my appearance. 
I became much more cognizant of it. So that's part of that acceptance component is where do you get to a point where sure your appearance is important and you're doing things in the in the you know realm of normalcy to take care of yourself and when does it become too much and so part of my treatment was being able to kind of put those horse blinders on conversations about surgeries and all these you know treatments and stuff and so i just don't let myself get involved with stuff like that it's never going to end well and even for people that don't have body dysmorphic disorder none of that stuff is ever good but I did work at a gym for, I was running gyms for, I'm not even going to say the chain because it was such a bad place to work, but you know, I was working for a gym chain and that was difficult because I, I was better with BDD at that point and could hold down a job and I never really focused on my body. And then working at the gym, I had friends that were personal trainers, they were bodybuilders. And I started becoming very particular about what I was eating and not in a traditional eating disorder way. I wasn't trying to like eat foods to lose weight, but I was on such a healthy mindset of eating healthy foods. And so now they've, they've deemed the term orthorexia, but got very fixated on only eating like natural organic foods, things with nutrients and stuff. But there's always going to be influences on that. And those of us with BDD, there's a part of our brain that's always going to perk up when we hear stuff about appearance-based things. So that's where you've got to just get to a really good closing point in treatment where you can really navigate that stuff from a much more clear lens versus letting BDD ever kind of jump in and have an opinion. So you say in hindsight, you know, a higher level of care residential may have been helpful. I think that's a very scary transition for a lot of people to make, and it's often not in your backyard. So it's a commitment financially, both from the treatment standpoint and even accessing it standpoint. But in terms of even doing the work when you're, you know, I know we've talked here on the podcast for OCD, ERP exposure and response prevention is huge. What was the combo? Because I'm kind of hearing some act as well from you. What was the combo that was most helpful in targeting the BDD? And did you find that some of that overlapped and helped with OCD as well? Or, you know, were there certain things specifically that were even more helpful when treating the BDD? Yeah. So I would say, even though a lot of people like to throw them together, having OCD and BDD felt like learning, like becoming bilingual, two different languages. It really wasn't the same that I really try to push as a therapist now. It's very different. The OCD never felt like it was about me. It was a scary thing. Like, you know, coming at me, the BDD felt very much me. So I think it was so much more important to separate myself from the disorder. The psychoeducation was so much more important for BDD and really understanding how my brain worked. And my therapist brought a lot of information that was coming out from UCLA. My psychiatrist, Jamie Fusion, was doing a lot of research to explain, like, because I kept asking, how come when I look in the mirror, I see this. Now I know it's wrong because I'm in a group of people that also do that. But why do we all see different? And obviously, I didn't need to go into a lab to understand, but there was enough education that I could see, oh my God, like the way that our eyes focus on things, the way that our brain processes imagery is different. That's why I see something different. So education was really important. So in the support group, we did focus on both cognitive behavioral therapy, and I would say that was a big difference. I didn't focus on as much traditional cognitive behavioral therapy with OCD. It was a lot more exposure and response prevention mm -hmm. for BDD. It was a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, sort of challenging where I was getting some of these beliefs from, because I was never made fun of with my skin. It was, you know, it's like kids aren't nice. If I really had horrid acne, I would have been hearing it my whole life if I really did. Because it moved to other stuff. I remember one time somebody asked me, 
oh, what ethnicity are you? And I said, oh, half Norwegian, half Greek. And he's like, oh, I could tell you have a pretty big Greek nose. And I'd never heard that in my life. And so that became a fixation for a while. Or somebody said once, like, you have a huge forehead and you could play movies on that thing or something stupid. And that became a focus. And then my jawline, I never felt was strong enough. So it moved around, but, you know, so cognitive behavioral therapy was important to sort of see where my thoughts were coming from, how I just like believed these thoughts, never challenged them. And exposure response prevention was helpful in BDD as well. But I would say with OCD, we pushed the limits, BDD not as much because I really truly believed these things. Mm-hmm. One thing that happened when I went and saw Ari like the second time is he focused a little bit more on what was underneath because there wasn't really anything underneath the OCD, but th- there's a lot of stuff under the BDD and what secondary gains I was getting from BDD. I mean, pushing people away because of my appearance, you know, served purposes. So we kind of delve a little bit deeper. I don't want to say psychotherapy, but we delved a little bit deeper under some of the whys and BDD, whereas you want to kind of stay away from that with OCD. Because one of the things I was afraid of in OCD made no dang sense, right? Like I've worked with clients that are atheists who fear that they're going to hell, but don't even believe, believe hell exists. So, you know, OCD could be nonsensical, but the BDD felt very me. So I would say the majority of it was definitely the education component. We did a lot of like mirror retraining. So changing the way that I look at myself in pictures and mirrors, cognitive behavioral therapy. So challenging the thoughts that I had and then exposure response prevention. I remember taking my first picture, I think at my 24th or 25th birthday and giving it to my family. But, but I would say that the last part of my treatment was sort of working on some of the underneath stuff and, you know, some of the self-esteem damaging I had from BDD and from growing up and all of that stuff. So it w- I felt like we treated the whole person at the end. And I think that's really why I'm, I'm where I'm at today. And what it helped me do as a clinician is realize like we can't just go in, treat the symptoms and move on. Like these are real people. And especially with my clients with BDD, it's taken a huge toll on their self-esteem and their outlook on dating and relationships and all of that. So he treated the whole person. So I remember leaving treatment, feeling much more whole. I was able to go off medication. I'm not on it currently. And I don't have relapses with BDD. I sometimes don't feel attractive. I can get stuck, things like that, but it's not. I always tell a joke like taxes and traffic and people taking so dang long to order in front of me is probably more annoying than BDD at this point. Whereas like BDD, my whole world. So the treatment works, you know, putting in that and and getting a clinician who understands the disorder and knows the treatment for it is life-changing. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, when you can compare something that was so earth shattering and soul crushing to these, you know, annoyances that can really be frustrating, but you know, it's manageable and you can choose to focus on it or not. But you know, to have the freedom to be able to be living your life and not feeling completely just bound to this perception of yourself is huge. And I think it's hard for family members to understand, especially if you're in a remote area where, you know, OCD isn't even understood, let alone some of the other OCD-related disorders. And and with BDD, especially if it's something that, like, isn't even there, you, you know, you can't see. It's one thing, you got that scar, I don't know, I, don't, I can't even see the scar or whatever. But if it's something there that somebody's like, I just don't get it. I don't see it. I don't know what you're like getting caught up about. And of course, that will shut that person down to say, I can't talk to you about this. 
you're not feeling seen and you might kind of start avoiding or isolating from that person or, you know, continuing to spiral, but on your own. And it's really hard for, I think, people to understand, this is a problem of culture at large, things that they don't experience, that everybody experiences things a different way. And so in terms of like, if you were going back to high school, you, both for you and mom, and you know what you know now, what would have you done from the sufferer side and from the parent side? What would have you done to try and manage home life, manage accommodation or not? You know, just what would have you done different in that setting? I would have gotten a professional involved immediately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The minute that you know that something is wrong, get a professional. And Chris has mentioned it. Flat out, professional therapists cost money, but in my mind, there was absolutely nothing more important. And I have no idea where the money came from. I really don't. But you just, whatever it is, you have to find a professional. And there are other options. It's There are other options now. It's not all private pay. So find a way that you can get a professional involved because not only is your child going to get better sooner, But that professional is going to help you as a parent figure out what do you have to do to really support your child. Mm -hmm. Because the support for someone with OCD, BDD is counterintuitive to motherhood. It just is counterintuitive. Whatever you are doing that you think you are doing to protect your child or help your child, it's usually the opposite of what your therapist will tell you. But we need to be told that by a professional. We need to understand why. And the person with the disease needs to understand why you need to do things differently. And that's where you start to see the recovery. Mm-hmm. But definitely get somebody involved that knows what they're doing. Yeah. It's such a hard question to answer. I would say probably the best thing that would have helped was being in therapy. I, I just, I, you know, obviously getting to a professional that understands this would have been ideal. But I'm being realistic, I would say, even if I would have just had a general therapist, the thing is we weren't anti-therapy. I actually, so I got in a fight in high school and got kicked out of high school and had to go to a different school and I had to go to anger management for that. And like I said, I was just a very angry teen because of all this stuff going on in my head. But I remember going to the therapist I was like assigned to for the anger management was terrible therapist, but I ended up getting another therapist who was really good. But I don't think I got her until like my senior year. And so we would talk about things and navigate through things, but it was never about this stuff. What I wish is even if I had a therapist that understood like dialectical behavioral therapy, who could have given me some soothing skills or something, it wouldn't have cured what I was going through or given me like the tools. But if somebody could have just made sense, I think if I had an understanding, if I had some coping tools that I could go home and like rely on, it wouldn't have gotten me better it would have just at least caused high school to be livable and it wouldn't have had such a horrific impact on the culture in our house because the house culture was terrible. Obviously, like dream would be anybody listening to this, get your kid to a specialist. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't care what it's going to take, but get there. I see my clients now who are in high school dealing with BDD and OCD and related disorders. The thing is because they haven't had 10, 15, 20, 40 years of doing compulsions, they get better a lot quicker. They listen, things like that. And so, you know, I've had clients where I worked with them 
And, you know, their parents then send me a picture of them graduating and they're like, the trajectory of treatment changed their whole life. And they had such a great rest of their middle school and high school. So yes, in a perfect world, it would have been getting with a specialist who could have said, this is what you're going through. It would have probably caused a lot of the anger and the, the substance use disorder to go down. And I would have had tools. But even if I couldn't do that, at least a therapist trained in helping with like really intense anxiety and emotional dysregulation would have been a better option. I just wish somebody somewhere would have told me like, you're going to be okay. This is why you're feeling the way you are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too. And you mentioned it earlier about how you were proud of your younger self for not giving up because it can be really hard when you go to therapy and you feel, I'm, I'm still aghast at the two examples you provided yeah. with them. Like, where's the no sex and psychotherapy pamphlet? And where's that? The ethics? The pamphlet, right? <laughs> I know the pamphlet. If you, you know, if you go to grad school, if we, you hear about the pamphlet, yeah. but, but it's such a, inappropriate unethical thing to say i would date you if you weren't you know in here right now I, just terrible also breaching confidentiality bringing other clients into your session and saying you know what your stuff your ish it doesn't matter compared to theirs and so i'm gonna like prioritize people that matter that's what that's what it must have felt like over and like i said it wasn't even like hey i have a client emergency i need stuff he literally left the office not the whole building but like left his like office must have gone to the waiting room or whatever and i just remember him opening the door and there's these two young girls that had to be like 12 they were twins and they're standing there next to him and i'm kind of just okay, what's going on, you know? But I think that was the trend because of OCD and BDD not being taken seriously. I think that what I would have loved is if somebody said, because now working in the field, I would have not had to be in treatment for two years and maybe even get on medication if somebody would have said, we're going to put you in the right level of care. Now, of course, at the time, we didn't have any access. And so that was part of it. I do believe if I would have gotten an intensive partial hospital, et cetera, I would have gotten better a lot quicker. But I would say it was finally with Karen and with Ari, they were the two that finally took it seriously and made me feel like not crazy because going to these other therapists and psychiatrists being dismissed the way that I was as, oh, there's other people out there worse or what, you know, whatever they were saying, it, then it makes you, am I crazy? Do I, yeah, am I being, you know, and, and a lot of times it just made me not want to open up, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's an important message for therapists, practitioners, treatment providers to go. If you don't know, and if you're like this, it's over my head, say that. Don't waste people's time. Say, you know what? I don't know, but let's see. The proper thing would be to refer and give appropriate referrals and help. If you're not sure what that is, help figure it out and get your client to somebody that can help them. Admit when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it doesn't even necessarily mean that client will stop working with you. They might say, let's learn together because I trust you or I feel, you know, and maybe you can do that and maybe you can't. But ultimately, you have to be honest with yourself in that if you're providing this kind of treatment, if this is out of your wheelhouse, you say, this is out of my wheelhouse or team up and, you know, get some releases to talk to some people and, and form a team. There are treatment programs now developing and growing a lot more than even 20 years ago. Yeah. One thing I wanted to add to kind of piggyback and, and highlight you know, what you were saying, because it's so excellent. That's the other thing as a family member, what you can do if this is a family member listening, if your loved one is going to consistent therapy and not getting better, 
what you should do as a loved one is, is encourage, you know, your loved one to allow you to sit in on a session and say, this isn't working. I'm not blaming you. I don't know what it is. Because sometimes a therapist is great. It just needs a higher level of care. And like you said, if, if somebody doesn't know what they're doing or they know what they're doing, but no, it, it's, you know, the person's too intense and they need something. Everything you said is what's needed. Because I think sometimes people abandon treatment early because they're not getting better when there's other things. What would some of those treatment programs that you you know about, not to put you on the spot, but there is that BDD program <laughs> that you were talking about, but just some treatment, higher levels of care, should it be needed for anybody listening? What would some of those resources be? Yeah. So here in, in Southern California, where I work, we have an intensive outpatient program at the Gateway Institute. And what I love about it is we work one-on-one -on -one versus like group therapy. So people get better. But some people need more. They need a partial hospital program. So we have a couple Rogers Behavioral Health in California. I know there's one up north, but we have one in Los Angeles and one in San Diego. And they have a partial hospital, which is six hours a day for someone a little bit more severe. I will say their therapy structure is a little bit more group therapy. So people have to be comfortable with that, you know, and they're not always working one on one with a therapist. But that would be a, a next level would be a partial hospital. So um, but an intensive is, is great for people that are pretty severe too, because three hours a day with homework, if somebody needs higher level of care, then that's when we're going to look at a residential. So I know we have Amita Health, which is out there in Chicago. We have the McLean Institute, the OCBI, which is the main hub is in Boston. They also have one for kids 17 and under. They also now have the Houston OCD center. That's ran by Liz McAvale, somebody that I do a lot of stuff with. So there's in Houston. We also have one in Utah that I'm not as familiar with, but I've had clients that have gone to the residential in Utah and really liked it. Out here in California, we have PCH. It's not because it's on PCH. It's like psychological care and health or something like that. But they have a residential. I know that they're residential. You're also with other types of subtypes. So they have people that have psychosis and substance use and bipolar and things that that's kind of a factor whereas like the mclean and the rogers and the amita you're typically with people all with ocd on the bdd end you know i know some of those centers do treat bdd i just don't know how well so typically if somebody isn't going to do an intensive with me i refer there's a couple therapists that i trust but but a higher level of care i know ari winograd in los angeles where i went for treatment his center has an intensive as well and has support groups. So he's at the BDD and Body Image Clinic of Los Angeles. So, but there's not a lot for BDD. I mean, a lot of times you're the only person with BDD and you're kind of getting OCD care. And the problem is OCD care, like the, the CBT ERP model will get your symptoms down, but there's so much more with BDD. So, I mean, that's kind of my thing. I mean, that's what I would love to do one day is open up a center that had, you know, residential treatment for people with BDD. I, I think that that's so needed. So. The good thing is if you go to the IOCDF website, there's a whole BDD website. Mm -hmm. There's also a page that talks about the different residentials. What I would encourage people to do is really ask your questions about BDD. You know, I know you treat OCD, which is better than going to a depression and anxiety residential center. But do you have someone who really, really knows BDD? Do you have somebody that has been working with BDD clients constantly? My half of my caseload is BDD and I see it every day. So I think that's the biggest question, but going to like a Rogers or a, or a McLean would be the best, you know, advice for residential. Yeah. 
So when when Chris was mentioning PCH, that's Pacific Coast Highway, Highway One that runs up the coast. He was saying, you know, it's it's got a different a different acronym, but that is an option. And you know, also going, I think if you go on the provider search on IOCDF, and again, it's going to be few and far between, but you can filter. You might need to up seven hundred thousand mile kind of radius. Yeah. It's like a dating site gone wrong. You're like, oh my gosh, I want somebody in my town though. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but what I would say is if you are a practitioner, you happen to be hearing this, that does treat BDD and you know that your area doesn't have a lot of resources, I think even building those relationships with your local IOPs, your intensive outpatients, you know, Rome is not going to be built in a day and residential programs that are focused on something else are not going to just go BDD because you came and told them something about it. But if you build a relationship, and I'm finding this where I live, where there is a desire to at least know more about OCD because we see people hospitalized, they don't know what to do with that. BDD, they may not know what, even more so what to do with that. And in terms of, you know, if we can build these relationships, whether it's with pediatricians' offices, plastic surgeries, med spas, med spas probably not going to send you their clients because it's <laughs> they, want, they want to keep those clients probably, but it's a good place. Dermatologist offices, you know, they often might be pushing some med spa stuff, but often they're also treating a lot of different serious skin conditions. And, you know, we can build these working relationships, raising awareness even on, you know, is there a good BDD checklist that at least they could even reference? Sometimes these doctors will have lunches on Fridays where you can, you know, say, I'm bringing in Panera Bread. I'm going to tell you about stuff or here, what's your Starbucks order? Send it to me. And you can build some of these relationships. But that can be so huge in educating and kind of paying forward the little nuggets of information that we understand and that we can pass forward because those make a difference. And a little true nugget is so much better than no information at all. Another thing is because of this day and age of social media, and like you were saying, Liz, like back then it was harder to find the information, but now we have a lot of talks. You know, we're going to have this podcast. We have Lots on YouTube through IOCDF. There's going to be a lot specifically on BDD that we can Google in different search engines and we can listen to people with lived experience, with expertise that are, are treating, that have been a part of support groups. And you know what? You can be anywhere in the world and you can listen to that on YouTube. You can watch that or you can download a podcast. And so also because that education piece was so crucial Having that and having your own treatment, going into therapy, kind of sound like the major things to arm yourself with. You go into a therapist. If they don't know BDD, you say, hey, bring them the research article. Bring them the link. Send them the link. Watch it together. Watch it apart. Say, screw it. I only see you so often. You watch it on your own time. <laughs> we'll talk about it. But bring that information. Have them help vet it with you clinically. Maybe they will be able to learn something too, or at least be able to refer you to somebody else if they go, yeah, it's so out of my wheelhouse. I don't know what I'm doing. Because a good therapist will do that. They will say, I don't know. And maybe, yeah. maybe we need to find out more information. So I think that's a, a really good point. If I could add one thing, it's funny you said that there's a woman that I met at the conference in Denver who's in Canada, who's actually trying to push through, I guess it's a lot easier to push through legislation up there. But she's trying to push through legislation that every plastic surgeon has to do a checklist before operating on someone to tease out BDD 
I will say like, that's one thing that I love to do. I would love to do on the nonprofit space is to get into all the things that you said, the med spas, the plastic surgeons. The problem is they're not, especially here in America, they're not very open to that. In fact, I had a client who was in their very early twenties, who was on their like 13th procedure and, you know, part of the treatment program, I, I had them, you know, agree to let me talk to the plastic surgeon and he ducked and dived and avoided me forever. And when we finally connected, had no interest, you know, my client was one of his best customers. Why would he turn it away? The only way I think that's ever going to happen is the studies do show that people with BDD are much more litigious with their, you know, cosmetic surgeons, the dermatologists, the cosmetic dentists and plastic surgeons, because people with BDD, it's not an image issue. These aren't people that do really have body part issues, but they're getting operated on and typically they don't think it was good enough or they think it was done incorrectly. So we do know people with BDD do sue on a higher level than the average person. Now, the problem is all these people have great insurance, right? So it's not really any sweat off their back because they already have to pay for their monthly, you know, insurance for, you know, for protection. So it's not going to really put any sweat off their back. So if insurance companies start getting tired of being sued, you know, it'd be a lot cheaper for them to then, you know, do that. So trying to find some way to prevent some of those people from operating and getting them like, hey, if your client has this, here's where you could send them. And look, if that person ultimately comes back and gets uh, surgery with you, at least they've gone through treatment and are less likely to do it out of desperation. So those are some of the futures that I hope besides more treatment centers, besides more education, that would be another area that I would love. And just an open conversation about BDD as well and treating it like the serious disorder it is. Yeah. So and, and part of it is just having a conversation. So if you're hearing this, even if it doesn't apply, having a conversation, hey, I learned about this thing called BDD. You know, let's talk about it. It's interesting. You know, let's let's learn more about it. We can have conversations. Anything that we can do to help create conversation is going to help create exposure. It's going to help us be able to further along and ultimately lead to these educational sources that can help people lean in and have some hope. So I, I think this is fantastic. And you guys, thank you so incredibly much. I mean, this is Going back, and it has to be, you know, so raw and triggering to look back at different stages of your journey. But, you know, it's amazing how you guys not only have been able to empower yourself through learning, through knowledge, through getting yourself access to care, through working through it together and creating that support. And we are, we're better together. If you're just estranged from your family right now, you can look at Chris and his mom and go, Hey, these two, they haven't always been so close. And it was the mental illness that was getting in the way. And now they're able to be advocates together and be able to put forward and pay forward what they learned so that someone else out there going, I don't even know that I wouldn't have even thought of this as a potential for mental health can go, hmm, what's going on? And I would also say to the peace mom, when you were saying, you're like, I just thought it was behavioral. Often, if there's a behavior kicking up, there's something fueling behavior. We don't, steam trains aren't going down the track just without any steam. So, you know, there's something going on there. If you're even going like, I don't know, but I don't know. Okay, they might not know. Your loved one may not know. But going and saying, hey, maybe it's worth getting some help. And there may be some resistance, especially if we're dealing with a lot of anger and a, a teen at that, like try to tell a teen to do anything really, you know, sometimes it's kind of a battle. But if you're dealing with some anger, they might be like, no way am I going to see a professional? It's okay. Let them be mad. They're going to be mad anyway. Might as well earn that stripe, right? 
Say, let's go, you know, at least talk to somebody and have a second opinion. Could something else more be happening here? But I just I love the honesty and the vulnerability and the hope that this really brings. Thank you for that. For today's intrusive thoughts segment, which is our application segment of the show, I'm going to talk with Chris and Liz about some of the resources available to support you or your loved ones on their journey with BDD. Also, I just wanted to shout out for our UK fam, the BDD Foundation at bddfoundation.org is also a great resource. But join me as we continue the conversation in talking about resources that can be helpful for you here and now. Chris, you mentioned a couple books at the end of the session in Denver, and I know your mom listed one of them earlier. Was it Broken Mirror? Yeah, so I'd say Broken Mirror, right? Well, you talk about that one. Right. That's the first book that I think was written on it. And it actually, it's a thick book, but it actually reads very well. It does not read like a textbook, and I thoroughly recommend it. There may be more up-to-date ones, but I haven't read any more recent ones, but that one is an excellent book. And really, it also, if you can have a discussion with your loved one, it really helps you to understand what's going on in their head. Yeah. Like having that, I love how you gave the example of, it says this. Did you do that? Like literally, like you don't even have to repackage it. It's 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 there, and you can check. You can check. Yeah. I think what helped was it always reiterated. If my brain ever was like, maybe this isn't BDD, and you really are ugly, it was like, oh wait a second, it's in the book. Yeah, I, I would say Catherine Phillips' Broken Mirror would be the first one. A colleague of mine who also has BDD, who I really really cherish, and has been somebody that I did the talk with at the conference is Scott Granite. And I know he just recently wrote a book on BDD as well, Mm -hmm. body dysmorphic disorder, mine and yours of personal and clinical perspectives. And then my therapist, Ari Winograd wrote face-to-face with body dysmorphic disorder, psychotherapy and clinical insights. So I would recommend both of those, The Broken Mirror. The BDD workbook by Dr. Claiborne is a really good BDD book because it's a workbook for people that might not be able to get into treatment or on a waiting list. And then I know as a clinician, um, there's a couple of really good books put out by like Fugan, uh, Nezaraglu, Catherine Phillips, and Sabine Wilhelm. There's one that I really like that I have called Overcoming Body Dysmorphic Disorder. But there's like specific exposures that people can do that enhance like insight and learning. So I would say any book by them, you know, is going to be exceptional. Also, if you go to the IOCF BDD website and click on books, there's like a list of books that they yes. like. Yeah. Yeah. So IOCDF, I, I fall back on them all the time. And you, you, even if you're having Chris, you can see Chris pop up all over there. Board member Chris. I mean, absolutely. They have such rich resources worldwide. And I know we've talked a lot about treatment here in the States, but as you mentioned, there's some initiatives going in Canada. There is work happening worldwide. Yes, it's happening more in European countries and in North America right now. But we are working to change that, and you can be part of the change maker here. So no matter who you are, where you live, having that conversation, starting those conversations, being curious together, even if it doesn't affect you directly, so you think. It's worth having the conversations and learning about something new. If this interests you at all, if you happen to be a clinician or a psychologist and you're like, hmm, you know, 
this maybe reminds me of my Tuesday at three o'clock. Maybe you could look into it more and we can never have too much equipping of, of information. And so, you know, if you have a license renewal coming up, maybe you need some hours. Maybe there's some CEOs over an OCD related disorder, over OCD, over BDD. That would be huge. So I just thank you both so much. I just really appreciate that you guys took the time to be with us in the OCD family community. Chris, I know you have a presence on Instagram. You're on social media. People can follow and learn more information. And also, Liz, I saw that you, even on IOCDF, look, you can find Liz on IOCDF as well. This is like popular family. <laughs> but, you know, you can find out more information about OCD support groups for families and loved ones. And I'm looking at the page right now on IOCDF.org. I'd like to put a plug in for our group because it's still virtual. Yeah. We do have a family and loved one support group. It's the second Saturday of every month. We've been going on for 10 years now and it is virtual. So we have, yesterday we had someone from Germany. We were very excited. So we get people from all over and you might want to try it out because it's people with OCD and related disorders and family members who are supporting them. And just questions and answers and discussion and sharing of information. And I think it could be something definitely worth trying out if you don't have a local support group. I love that. I'm up to one o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the second Saturday of each month. And it is free. So there's no cost, no, no negative side to trying it out. And on the IOCDF website it does have my email you just have to send me an email and i will add you that is great so i on this episode's podcast post as well and you please go to iocdf.org look around soak in there's a lot to soak in but i will also put a link to the support group information because it has liz's email address so they can email you and get a zoom link it's free if you sign up and you don't go oh well but it's a it's a resource and a free resource that you can be anywhere in the world. And if you have Wi-Fi, you can connect. So I love that. That is such a that's such a great resource. Well, I really I just again, thank you so much to both of you for taking the time. It's inspiring. And I know that I know it gives me hope. But I just I always feel so empowered and feel like, man, this is just really powerful work we're doing when people can say, I was sitting there going, this is never going to be me. And now we can be like, hey, this whole family is all up in IOCDF. I mean, this is great. Like the hope available to people in treatment. Could you imagine the traffic being the same level as this thing that was soul crushing and has taken lives? And, you know, it just it's so powerful. So thank you both. What's your final thought? What do you want to leave parents with? I think now when we were in person, we got to see, visually see it more. But I think that one of the things from our family support group, I am so excited to see people come in, usually teenagers. And then when they are disappearing because they're going off to college mm -hmm. and we have seen so many success stories. And not because of our family support group, but we just get to see it. Of families that come. When Chris was sick, I had no success stories. There was no hope. I was told that very few people get better. It was just, there was so little at that time. And so now we feel perfectly thrilled to be able to tell people there are so many people getting better. Absolutely. 
see so many people getting better. There's so much hope out there. So I love that. Don't give up. My final thought is, you know, the at the IOCDF, we have a body dysmorphic disorder special interest group, and we're meeting actually really soon. One thing we're going to be talking about is, is putting out more trainings for clinicians so they can get the proper training so they can help people with the proper treatment. So for clinicians, please, please, please go to those. They'll probably be low cost. The CEs involved as well. I would say just as a person, I mean, obviously part of the reason I do this work is because it pains me that so many years of my life were kind of taken from me and we're dark and that's part of the reason I do the work. And so what I think the biggest thing I would leave everybody with, especially for the loved ones, is take this seriously. You know, if your loved one had cancer, you wouldn't put it off or, or put in kind of a, a minor effort to see how it goes. When my mom kind of jumped in and made it the most important thing in my world, and I knew that we were going to do this thing, I finally had some hope. And a lot of times we're not in a place to see our own hope and to see kind of outside just our here and now because it's so tumultuous. So as a loved one, if you can take it seriously, find the help and put the effort in, your loved one's more likely to come along with it. So there's definitely hope and help out there. And please, please, please make sure that your loved one's getting the help that they need. And if it's you who's listening to it with it, I know there's a million and six reasons your brain is coming up with why not to do it, but the best reason to do it is so you can live a full life like I do. So hope yeah. everyone gets what they need. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, uh, you know, yeah, the, there's always going to be a million reasons. I'm thinking of the Lady Gaga song. And it's so funny how so many songs now you're like, oh, that would be a good song I could <laughs> kind of throw in there. But yeah, there's always a million reasons why something maybe couldn't work, won't work isn't going to work. I've tried it. It didn't work. You know, even if it was therapy, but yeah, I mean, you, you're worth it. You are worth it. Your life is worth it. Your future relationships, your current relationships, your family. And so this is really a success story. And now you guys are able to continue to help others hold success stories, not just yours, but you know, so many, as you said, Liz, and I, I, I just love that. So Thank you once again for all this time. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you, Nicole. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like BDD, raising awareness that is key. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.